0: Pray before we start. God, yet again, I need your help. Yet again, I'm looking for your word in all of this. Yet again, I'd like you to speak. And I pray that we'll just encounter more of you and less of me. Put your word in this, God. Amen. All right, well, good morning, everybody. And um, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 11, uh, the word of Jesse. And, and here is a picture of poor old Jesse here. Um, He's looking pretty grumpy as a tree grows out of him and I was thinking well, you know, I'd probably feel a bit grumpy if if I had a tree growing out of me. Um, A bit of an introduction for those of you who don't know me. One of the things that I do outside of church is I'm a scout leader. Um, Seven years ago, my wife Claire put our eldest son's name down on the list to to join up and... um, I'm not really the sort of person who likes to sit in the background whilst other people do the work, so I got involved as a a parent helper, that evolved into becoming an assistant leader, and now here I am six years later as a a scout leader, which is something I never really expected, but it's something that happens with most volunteering roles, as as many of you will know. Now this summer, just past, I plucked up the courage to take the kids on an expedition, and here they are. we spent a whole term preparing for this, teaching them how to cook on a mess burner, pitching tents, map reading, lots and lots of hikes, because these guys don't want to walk more than a mile. We took them 18 miles over Exmoor, and this is up at the top of Dunkery Beacon, uh, and it was tough. I have to say, it was a, a tough expedition. It was 30 degrees C, it was the hottest day of the year, uh, and a lot of hills. It, there was no flat ground at all. Um, and there were points when the kids were really ready to give up um, some of them had, couldn't carry their rucksacks any further the leaders ended up carrying double rucksacks one on the front, one on the back up hills, it was, it was tough going and um, we were against the clock to try and get to the campsite before the tea room next door closed which I'd arranged to stay open and all this sort of thing it, it wasn't easy you might recognise a few people up here you've got Daniel Birch here on the left Whee! Um, Poppy Hallett, you might know if you know Joe Hallett uh, Jake Graham is one of the young leaders in this lot I can't quite see him because well, I haven't got my glasses on but I think he's the one in the, right in the front um, Adam, Grace LePage um, there's a few here that you might know on the top of this hill we caught a glimpse of our campsite in the distance in the far, far distance and part of me kind of think, yes, you can see it and part of me was like Oh there's a there's a long way to go. And it's hot. Sometimes my faith feels like that expedition. It's a slog. It's I can't really pretend that it's anything else other than a long, long journey. It's not a quick walk, it's not a little walk down the canal on the nice flat. It is a slog. And if I had to draw like a, a kind of a line of ups and downs it would be very up and down. It's not a plain... I don't think that my faith has ever been a a plain sailing walk along the canal. It's always been a bit of a slog. Sometimes you're going up, slogging up a hill carrying a heavy load. Sometimes you're in the shade in the valleys and everything's going great. But it's not been a particularly easy walk. One of the verses that's helped me over the years is in Psalm 42, which talks about remembering the good times. You know, even when times are bad... You look back and you think, yeah, there has been good times when I've led the, led the throng to the throne of God. But sometimes you have to think, yeah, okay, it has been tough, but you just keep going. Because what alternative have you got? Are you just going to give up? Are you going to, you know, on the top of Dunkery Beacon, you're just going to go, well, that's it, I've had enough now, I'm out of here. You know, it's not going to work. You have to keep going. You have to keep going. One of the things that I hang on to, one of those, you know, as I remember, has been prophecy. And in particular, there have been moments when I think, that had to be God. You know, there, there's, no, you know, there's no, not, not some, just a nice feeling, not just a, a clever argument, not just a kind of bit of a wobble that made me think, oh yeah, maybe there's a God. Something absolutely concrete. Absolutely, there has to be a God. There is no choice. I have to believe in him. And absolutely no choices. And the things that has made that for me has been prophecy. God exists, and prophecy has proved that to me, that God exists whether I like it or not. I have no choice. I have to follow him because he exists. And that's what prophecy brings us. It brings us a hope for the future, because God's word is good. And if he gives a prophecy, usually it's something that good's going to happen. Not all the time, but usually God's word is good, that something good will happen. And no matter how glorious a mountaintop you might be on, Or how deep a valley of despair, God still has a plan for us, and it's to keep going in this race. One of the prophecies I had in this church a while back, which wasn't quite so happy, was a picture of a tree that had been blasted to pieces, and it was a stump, a ruined stump. It was a pathetic excuse for a tree. No one would look at this and think, oh, that's a nice tree. It was ruined. It was broken, it was limbless, it was a pathetic shell of a former glorious tree. It wasn't like the tree bearing fruit in Psalm 1. It was just shredded. And the word I had from God was that this tree would still bear fruit. Somehow, against all odds, this ruined, annihilated tree would still bear go to leaf again and would somehow bear fruit. And that's the same word that God is giving to Israel at the moment in, in Isaiah eleven. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse and his roots a branch and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. So here we have this different translations a rod or a branch of Jesse. And it's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. There is a hope coming. And a shoot will bear fruit from this ruined stump of a tree. I find this picture of a a ruined stump quite poetic. Because when I look at a tree stump, you know, you might look at a tree stump in your your garden, or a tree stump in your garden, you might think, I remember when there was a tree there. I remember the good times. I remember sitting in the shade of this tree. I remember the kids climbing in this tree. And now what we've got is a tree stump, just a, an annoying reminder, something you trip over, something you look at and you think, and it's dead. It, and if I have a tree stump in my garden, it's something I'd prefer not to think about, I'd prefer to ignore it. You, know, you can't really do very much with a tree stump, can you? You know, Digging it out is, is almost impossible. You can try and cut it flat, but it's still there. You can't just ignore it and hope it goes away. It is an inconvenience. And not only is it an inconvenience, but it's a reminder of something that was once good, has now turned bad. Your faith might feel like that rotten tree stump. You might look back on those golden years and look at the ruin of the times you've been through. It might be that you're going through tough times right now. And you might wonder, how can I ever bear fruit again? How can I ever go back to the golden years of, you know, this beautiful tree, when right now you might think, well, I I feel more like this kind of tree. Your fruit's gone, shade's gone, no children are playing around you anymore, broken, feeling useless, you feel that no one really wants you anymore. But the prophecy that I gave and the prophecy that God gave to Isaiah was no. God is not finished with you yet. Your faith may feel broken, but fruit is still coming. Your hope has not yet expired. The tree is still there. The roots are still good. And regardless of how ruined you might feel from the outside, God is saying, no, there is still fruit coming. Now, in Isaiah, that ruined stump is Jesse. Jesse was the father of David uh, the grandfather of Solomon, and the Jews would have remembered this as the golden period of Israel. This was the this was the good stuff. This was, you know, the temple and the wars going well, and you know all the, the all the enemies bowing at their feet. David has killed his tens of thousands, and all this sort of thing. That's what they would have thought of. This was the golden period of Israel. Israel was top dog in the Middle East, and no one could stand against them. But Isaiah is now speaking to a broken Israel. When we were looking at um, Elijah in the last series, that was when Israel had lost its way. Here we go. So what happened around that time is Israel split in half. And the northern bit was called Israel, and the southern bit was called Judah. And you can see the timeline up there. You can see um, Elijah kind of along the top bit. And Elijah was speaking to this fractured and broken Israel where they'd started following Baal and they started getting involved in other countries and other, their neighbours and the warring tribe and all this sort of thing. And at the same time, you, in the southern bit of the split, you had Obadiah and Joel and here we are with Isaiah speaking to this broken and fractured Israel where everything was going wrong. It was a ruined stump. It was the stump of Jesse and that was what Isaiah was speaking into, this this broken kingdom. But God was promising that from this broken stump, this mess, this annihilated near forgotten promise, that a king would still rise from this broken line of David, this promised Messiah. In fact, God wanted to use this broken stump rather than a strong and magnificent tree because God delights in bringing joy out of failure, doesn't he? He wants to demonstrate his power through our weakness. And as Isaiah says later in chapter 61, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair because God glorifies the weak, not the strong. So, okay, great. We've got that picture in our head. But what on earth has this got to do with Jesus? Because this is the first of the the series running up to, you know, of Advent. And this is one of the prophecies to do with Jesus. But you think, well, it doesn't really say anything. What, What has this got to do with Jesus? The first word, reason that this is to do with Jesus is to do with the Hebrew word for rod or branch, which is used repeatedly as a picture of this coming Messiah. Uh, Jeremiah 23 says, Behold, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. Zechariah 3 says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men of good omen. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. So this term branch is particular to messianic prophecies. He, you know, it's just the term God uses. Now, okay, so we've got this branch, therefore it's the Messiah. Now, I'm no Hebrew scholar by an extraordinary margin, and I'll probably butcher the pronunciation of this, but the Hebrew word for branch is Neitzah, Neitzah. And it is the origin of the place name Nazareth. So Nazareth and Neitzah are basically the same origin of word. So here we have Jesus coming from Nazareth, Nazareth. The second reason we can link this passage with Jesus is that this Nazar Messiah will lead people even as a little child. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Not just a child leading them, but a little child, essentially a baby, a ruler who was born as an authority over mankind. And this is where the rule of Jesus is fundamentally different to the rule of man. Moses was 80 when he led the Jews out of Egypt. David was 30 when he was anointed king over Israel. And apparently Solomon was about 15 when he became king of Israel. But Jesus was born a king. He was born a king. He didn't inherit his kingship from somebody else. He didn't earn it in some way or be anointed with it later. He was born a king. He was born this ruler. And not just any ruler. He was a ruler who cared for the poor and needy and would bring peace. So instead of like the kings like David and Solomon where, who are you know, fabulously wealthy and powerful and great warriors and all this sort of thing, Jesus was born a king he didn't inherit it from anyone else, that's really quite important. You know, He was born king, and he came into the world as poor and peaceful, rather than powerful and, and rich. Again, another picture of Jesus. Thirdly, he is named as a descendant of Jesse. Now, he could have been called a descendant of David, in which case, Isaiah would be pointing back to how you know David was this great king or Solomon or probably David. You know, David was the, the kind of pinnacle. Israel liked to think about David, but instead Isaiah calls him the, from the line of Jesse. And Jesse was just a shepherd. He was a nobody. He was a farmer. He was, you know, from the Southwest point of view, he was a hard-working Wurzel. He was just a regular guy. And his son was the glorious king and all that sort of thing. So Isaiah is saying here that this mighty branch, this promised Messiah is descended from not only the king of David but also this this humble shepherd. So putting these pieces together, we've got this Natsa Messiah, a shepherd king descended from Jesse and born as a ruler who will bring justice to the poor and peace to mankind. That has to be Jesus. Let's move on. In my job, I have to make predictions. I, I teach noise control for heavy industry, which really is as nerdy and boring as it sounds. Um, I train people how to police noise from really big, nasty, heavy industries. Anything from a car fragmentizer up, you know, really big, nasty, horrible stuff. And part of that is predicting sound. I have to predict how loud something will be at a distance away from it. Now, I'll try not to get into lecturing because (laughs) if you'll all walk away. Um, This pretty picture is from some modelling software and it's trying to predict how noisy this road is from a distance but I don't really like the software, um, so I do this by hand. I have to try and work out how much acoustic noise energy there is in a source, and then what direction that energy is pointing in, and then a best guess at how, <coughs> a best guess at how much sound is absorbed as it bounces along the ground and off surfaces and barriers and air temperature and humidity and all this sort of thing. And in all honesty, when I put these predictions together, they're not very pretty. They're, they're, a, they're a bit of a mess. And I speak in, in conferences, and my favourite topic to speak on is how much predictions can go wrong when you tie them all together in a chain like that. If you're less than one order of magnitude wrong, you're, you're doing quite well. You know, it really is that sort of the scale of things that can go wrong. And a lot of the formula I use are, are just estimates. They're, they're not, you know, empirical formulae. They're just kind of best guess things that sorts of fit. They're, my predictions are essentially guesstimates. They're attempts. They're approximations. They're, I think it will probably be something like this. Now, if you were with Isaiah in 700 BC and you were going to predict what was going to happen to Israel, you would predict, looking around... The, let's go back a slide you would predict from this mess that Israel would progressively fall into ruin. It was losing its strength. The Babylonians and the Assyrians around them were getting stronger. They were fractured. There were fights over kingships and all this sort of thing. Kings were killing each other. It was, it was a mess. You would see, you predict the, the Assyrians and Babylonians going to be invading you because you know, they're, they're right there. You would expect Israel to be just blotted out of history Just an interesting side note, a little footnote, amongst many other kingdoms in the area, Israel would just vanish into obscurity and be destroyed by these growing kingdoms around them, which in turn would be destroyed by their other kingdoms. That's predictions. But God doesn't make predictions because he actually knows the future. So God isn't making a prediction here. He is saying, this is what will happen. It's not just rolling a ball, and I, I predict that this ball will roll down the hill, He's, he knows the future. One of the questions I had to kind of get my head around, which I think is quite useful when we're thinking about prophecy, is how does God know this future? Because somehow God knew that from this rotten, broken, Jesse stump, a branch would grow from this ruined tree. And that generations later, 700 years later, a Messiah would be born out of, this, out of this, um, this, this branch. And it wasn't just a prediction that might hopefully be right but could well be wrong. This was the prophetic, spoken word of God. Now, I have to, because I'm that way minded, I'm going to disappear down an unapologetically... Theological bunny trail. The question is, how does God know the future? How does he know the future? Does he prophesy, does he give his word because he knows it's going to happen, because he knows the future, or because somehow he's kind of like already there? Let's try and clarify that a little bit. Here we go. If God is constrained by time, if, if God is in time like we are in time then he remembers the past so look at the the top one there he remembers the past because he knows everything he's in the present and he knows the future because he is all knowing that is what's called an imminent God or part of what's been called an imminent God he is a God who is somehow alongside us he experiences time in the same way as us but with remembering the past and, and knowing the future But is a God who is constrained by time somehow less all-powerful, less omnipotent? If he is constrained by time, then he is constrained. And if he is constrained, then how can he still be omnipotent? You know, that's quite a, a... That's a tricky one, isn't it? The alternative is that God is somehow outside of time. That he is completely unconstrained by time, and that's what's called this transcendent God. He transcends time. He knows the past because he's kind of somehow still there which just kind of breaks your brain and he knows the present because he is here and he knows the future because he's already there. Does that make him more omnipotent? You know, Does this kind of make sense that God is kind of somehow timeless? Now the advantage, let's go through both of these. This is me trying not to lecture. Um, the advantage of the immanent God, the God with us in time, is that it agrees very nicely with lots of scripture. So, for example, Jeremiah 29 says, God knows the plans he has for us, which fits quite well with the idea that he knows the future. Hebrews 8 says that he will remember our sins no more, so he remembers the past. That doesn't sound very much like this transcendent God who is somehow outside of time. Now, the advantage of the transcendent God picture, here we go, is that it makes some sense out of some really big and heavy uh, philosophical questions, like, is God omnipotent if he is constrained by time? Um, How can God make time if there's no time to be able to make something in? (laughs) That that messes with your head. Those, Those questions are resolved by transcendent God because... Time and God are now separate, and so God can do anything he wants, including making time. If God is constrained by time, how can He make time? Ugh. Now, I think that God is with us. God is imminent, personally. Not that it makes much difference to our lives, but I think that God is imminent because I think that we should take our understanding of God from scripture rather than from philosophy. So even though a transcendent God seems kind of more coherent from a philosophical point of view. The idea that God is somehow completely outside of time doesn't seem to make sense of Scripture, and our understanding of God should come from Scripture rather than from philosophy. Does that make sense? Yeah, a few people still with me. Great. So we have this imminent God with us. That's what I personally believe in, having gone through this. A God who walked with Adam and Eve and who knows us personally he knows every hair on our heads he he made man in his own image so you'd think that God is somehow experiencing time in the same way as us we have this alpha and omega the first and the last it seems to be that God is within time just another aside alpha and omega in Greek there are two letter O's there is like a capital O Big O, omega. It's not actually up there if anyone pointing that direction. Omega, big O. There is also a lowercase O, small O, called O-micron. Omicron. So there we go. Only learned that yesterday. Anyway. <laughs> the next question is that I'm going to try and deal with here is what does prophecy mean to God? So we know how he knows the future. I, you know he, knows it because he's all-knowing. He's not outside of time. But the next question is, well, what does it mean to God from his point of view? We know that God's word is truth. We probably all know that from Genesis. Genesis said, in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. But what does that actually mean? That's my last slide. What it means is that when God said, let there be light... He then didn't go around creating light. Light came into existence because God said, let there be light, and God's word is truth. And so when God says there's light, there is light, because God's word is truth. He doesn't then go around creating light. The world kind of like realigns itself around God's word because God's word is truth. It, It kind of like has no choice. Because God's word is truth, if God says there is light, then there is light, because God's word is truth. So when God spoke the planets and stars into being, he then didn't go around making the stars and the planets. He literally just spoke them into existence through his truth. And this applies to everything. So when God says to Mary, don't be afraid, it wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't even an order. It was literally the spoken word of God. It was the truth. Do not be afraid. Therefore, she wasn't afraid. It was literally God speaking into her being. Ezekiel 12 says, For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. The last thing I'm going to talk about, and the last thing this passage mentions, is what kind of kingdom this Messiah will bring. Now, obviously we kind of know that the kingdom of God will bring peace and justice and the revelation of God and all these sorts of things. The thing that I find particularly interesting about this passage are the very contradictory elements that God is trying to somehow gluing together? Um, there are wolves and lions and leopards and bears and cobras, and alongside that we have lambs and we have um, calves and we have children, and God is bringing these disparate fractions, almost like the broken Isaiah and uh, broken Israel. Together. He is sticking these things together. And what I think that's interesting here is that the lion isn't any less of a lion because it isn't killing the, the the cow, and the cow isn't any more than a cow because it's not being attacked by the lion. It's not like God has given taken away the teeth and the claws of the lion, or has somehow given the, the lamb, you know, big fangs and a pointy stick. God has brought peace through the knowledge of of himself. Through the revelation of God has brought peace. And it's not either that God has somehow scared them into submission. That God is mightier than the lions and bears and therefore they're, they're too afraid. You know, I'm not going to attack that child because I'm scared of God. No, God has brought these things into peace. These broken, disparate you know, things that shouldn't be together. He has brought them together in peace through experiencing himself, through, through the expression of God. And this is one of the core values of Christianity, is that God and the knowledge of God changes us on a fundamental level. It's not that we're given a set of rules that we have to try and keep in in, in the fear of God. Instead, God gives us the Holy Spirit that teaches us from the inside. He gives us new values instead of rules. A rule is something that needs to be imposed. I'm not allowed to do this even though I want to. But that hasn't actually changed us, and God does change us. God's kingdom doesn't bring rules, it's the opposite. It's a release from rules, and instead God brings us values. Jeremiah 31 says, This is the covenant covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they will be my people. People. No longer will they teach their neighbour and say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you, you reveal yourself to us and that you have taken the broken stump of Jesse and turned it into a faith that we can follow. And I pray that if our faith feels like that broken stump, you will help us to bear fruit, a a shoot a branch, just as you did with Jesse, God. And I pray that you will restore our faith just as you restored Israel and help us to follow you and experience you more. Amen.